Please turn with me in your Bibles to the 15th chapter of the Gospel of John. John chapter 15, and we'll be looking this morning at the first 11 verses. John 15, verses 1 through 11. Please give your attention to God's word. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. When I started in ministry many years ago, one of the fads that was sweeping through the church is what later became known as the church growth movement. It started in well-known churches, churches that are well-known now, like Willow Creek Church near Chicago. And when there's a movement like this, a a fad in the church, a lot of times it's, it's a corrective to a problem in the church. Every generation of the church looks at the church and we're always seeing weaknesses and it's a corrective often. And the corrective in this case was really a lack of leadership among pastors and elders, other types of leaders in the church. Lack of an understanding of how organizations work, of how to be efficient in marketing or, or just in terms of leading people through change. And in too many cases, when you became a leader in the church, you were told, just preach the word and love people and it'll all work out. And obviously, there's more to it than that. Well, as these megachurches became more popular, books started to be written by some of these prominent pastors and other leaders. And they would try to apply tried and true methods from the corporate world, the business world, just good solid principles about leadership to try to apply it to the church, to try to help the church become healthier and stronger. And as a result, churches grew, and actually it was kind of what led to the mega church, uh, mega churches that you have around the country in, in many ways, came out of this church growth movement. A lot of the leaders of those churches were also leaders in the church growth movement. I pulled a book off my shelf uh, written by one of the the early writers in the movement, a guy named Win Arn. And the book is called The Church Growth Ratio Book. And very well intended, the purpose of the book was to try to give some measurable criteria that you can apply to a local church to determine whether it's a healthy church or not. I'll give you the quote from his introduction to the book. It says, 
These are guidelines which, when followed, contribute to the revitalization, health, and growth of the local church. And so the idea was to come up with some metrics, some observations of what healthy churches are like and give these to church leaders so they can determine whether the church is healthy or not. Let me give you just a few examples. One of the principles was that a church should have one full-time staff member for every 150 people in worship. There's a a metric, a ratio for you. One full-time staff member for every 150 people in worship. For every $10 received in income in the church, $1 should be spent on outreach. In other words, 10% of your income should be spent on outreach, at least. Out of every 100 seats you have in your sanctuary, when 87 of those seats are full, you're going to stop growing. So, in other words, when your capacity, seating capacity, reaches 87%, then your church will stop growing. Five out of every 100 worshipers should be visitors from the community. So in any given worship service, 5% of the people in the sanctuary should be visitors from the community, new visitors. And then every new member, this book said, should have at least seven friends in the congregation within the first six months. Now, you can scoff at that. You can think, well, that tends to be true to my experience, whatever. It really is not my point is not to critique it, but to point out that, that the intent was to take something that's notoriously difficult to measure, which is success in ministry, and put some numbers on it, put some you know, measurements to it so that you can really assess how your church is doing. And I don't fault them for that. But the problem is that you stop using those as helpful measurements and you begin to rely on those kinds of things to produce what Wynne Arn called revitalization, health, and the growth in the church. I, he carefully worded that statement in, the, in his introduction today, this contributes to it. But unfortunately, many people in the church growth movement, many leaders that were caught up in this, began to rely on these kinds of things to produce spiritual health in the church. I want to read to you, I'm going to pull a couple of quotes from it. Let me pull the first quote from the beginning of an article written by a man named Lance Witt, who is on staff at Saddleback Church. If you know the name of that church, it's Rick Warren's church, um, and this, this man is on staff at that church, and so he's part of a real megachurch, large megachurch. Listen to what he says. He says, what's missing in the church today? That question was recently posed by, to a well-known megachurch pastor. His one-word answer was vision. Lance Witt says, I couldn't disagree more. He says, we are intoxicated with vision and obsessed with leadership. There is more big talk, more big ideas, more big dreams than ever before. Bigger and more has been the rallying cry of the church in the last generation. Over the last 25 years, vision and leadership and growth have become the topics of choice for pastors. In some ministry circles, CEOs and business entrepreneurs are quoted as frequently as the writers of Scripture. Enormous energy and resources have been thrown at helping us to become more effective leaders, and for good reason. A generation ago, pastors were equipped to exegete scripture, to understand church history, and craft sermons, but were ill-equipped to provide organizational leadership to the churches they were called to pastor. As churches grew and culture changed, pastors had to learn about the world of creating budgets, managing staff, casting vision, constructing buildings, raising money, worship programming, and managing change. So the inundation of leadership and church growth resources met a definite need. The focus on leadership and vision filled a massive void, and we have all been the beneficiaries. But not all of the impact has been positive. 
And I think that's what we're really beginning to understand. It's interesting from his perspective, someone who is in a megachurch, to say this has had a detrimental effect on the church as well. And so it brings us back to the crucial question, and not just I as a church leader, but you as a member of a church have to answer, what are we doing here? What makes a church grow? What does a healthy and successful church look like? Well, here in John 15, Jesus gives us a picture of his church, of his church when it's healthy, of his church when it's successful. And it will serve us well to look carefully at what he has to say. Here at Oakwood, we use the visual image of an oak tree. And we draw upon the language of Isaiah 61, where it talks about God's people becoming like oaks of righteousness. And so we talk about that image of oaks of righteousness as being a goal, something we strive for. Well, Jesus uses a very similar image here of a vine, and he's no doubt thinking of a grapevine. But it's very much the same message. Grapevines were very common in the life of Israel. If you walk through an Israelite village, you would see grapevines everywhere, not just in fields outside the town, but alongside the houses in the town. Grapevines were a daily part of life. And so this is a very common image for these, these, these Jewish uh, disciples. Matter of fact, if they knew the Old Testament, it would be a very common spiritual image because several times in the Old Testament, God uses the image of a vine to illustrate his people Israel. Matter of fact, Israel was seen, that was a symbol for Israel in the coins of the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament during the period of the Maccabees. The coins that were used in Israel had the symbol of a vine on it because they saw that as a symbol of their nation. And that's because there was, of scriptures like Isaiah 5. Listen, let me just read to you this description of Israel as a vine and God as the vine dresser, beginning in verse 1 of Isaiah 5. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved has a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked, to, he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there for me to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they, not, that they rain no rain upon it. And so Israel was to be like a healthy vine bearing good grapes, but instead in their rebellion they had borne bad fruit and God's patience had run out and now he was going to destroy his vineyard. Well, you'll notice earlier in the service we read from Psalm 80, which is really written later in, in, in Israel's history probably, or at least in a time when judgment had come from God upon his people, and it's a cry out to God to come back and visit his vine again. Let me read you just a couple of verses again from Psalm 80. It says, beginning in verse 8, You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove, the na drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it, and it took deep root and filled the land. Verse 12, 
Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stalk that your right hand planted. Please have mercy, God. Come back and take care of your vine again. And you know what's interesting? I don't know if you picked up on it at the end of the passage that we had in our responsive reading. At the very end, in verse 17, it says, But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. It's an allusion to the Messiah, the son of man who would come to bring this restoration of God's care for his vine and his vineyard. It's in that context, speaking to these Jewish believers, that Jesus says, I am the true vine. I am the true vine. And you are the branches. And so what Christ had come, he was the son of man who had come to restore God's care to his people. And to make this this church, which had been the church of the Old Testament, which is now becoming the church of the New Testament, a healthy and vibrant and growing, fruitful vine. So what indications do we get in this passage about how a vine becomes healthy? How does a church grow? What does success look like in ministry? When I was candidating for a church at one time, the uh, pulpit committee asked me to preach on a passage. They didn't tell me which passage to preach, but they told me they wanted the topic of the sermon to be, how do you grow a church? And they wanted, from how I handled that, they wanted to find out what was my philosophy of evangelism or church growth and, and to help them in making the decisions about whether I was a suitable pastor for that ministry or not. And I remember I chose a passage on evangelism and preached on evangelism and tried to show my philosophy of evangelism. But you know what? If I had to preach that sermon again today, I would pick a different passage. I would pick 1 Corinthians 3. Verse 7 particularly, where it says, So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Not that that's the whole story. There certainly is a place for evangelism and a philosophy of evangelism. But if the Lord doesn't build the house, then the laborers labor in vain. Unless the Lord is doing the vine dressing. That's what Jesus says here. He starts by saying, my father is the vine dresser. Don't ever forget that unless God waters, unless God causes the growth, nothing will happen. And that's the danger of looking to human leaders to provide what the church needs to grow. This church just went through a pastoral search a couple years ago. Every time a church goes through a pastoral search, it has to wrestle with this. There's this tendency to want to lay all this on the shoulders of the new guy coming in. You need to make this church grow. And no sinful disciple of Jesus Christ, no matter how experienced or gifted he is, can handle that kind of pressure or carry that kind of weight. Let me read to you a few more paragraphs from that article I read from the man on the staff of uh, Saddleback Church, uh, Lance Witt. Listen to how he goes on with this article. I left off where he said, but not all the impact of the church growth movement has been positive. He says, we have pushed the priority of a pastor's interior life to the fringes. As we have sought to fill the gap with leadership resources, we have inadvertently marginalized the soul side of leadership. The result is a crisis, a crisis of spiritual health among pastors. 
The statistics these days on pastors are troubling and paint a bleak picture. Pastors are leaving the ministry in record numbers. Discouragement and disillusionment are epidemic among those who lead in ministry, and many are choosing to fire themselves rather than fight any longer. Burnout, scandal, depression, immorality, loneliness, they are all words commonly associated with people in ministry. As pastors, we regularly preach that the Christian life is inside out. It starts with a heart. The root determines the fruit. Life flows from the vine to the branches. The same is true for our ministries. True, lasting, Christ-honoring fruit starts by paying attention to our interior life. What ballast is to a boat, a healthy soul is to a leader. And that is the danger of all this emphasis on visionary, efficient, quality leadership, is that we realize that if at the heart of our leadership there is not a passion for Christ and a solid biblical foundation and an intimacy with Christ, then as the leaders of the church go, so go the church. And so, how do we address that? Well, first of all, the first thing that this passage teaches us, and it should be obvious, I shouldn't even have to make this point, as you think about the image of the vine and the branches, but the first point we come to is that fruitful churches are Christ-centered churches. Fruitful churches are Christ-centered churches. Jesus says, I am the vine. You are the branches. Don't ever forget that. He is the vine. We are the branches. Our life as a congregation, as individual believers, and as a corporate body, our life comes from Christ. It is in Christ, that great phrase that Paul uses over and over and over again in the New Testament. It is in Christ that we have unity, vitality, and effectiveness in service in his kingdom. Only as we are in Christ. When he says, I am the vine, this is the last of seven great I am statements. That great number seven that scripture uses over and over again. It's interesting, there are seven I am statements. We talked about how the the word, when he says I am, it's an allusion to the name Yahweh identifying himself with the God of the Old Testament. I am, but he gave us seven statements in the Gospel of John, and we come to the last one, and all these statements need to be at the very core of who we are as a body of believers. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheepfold. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. Christ must always be the very center of our message, the very center of our worship, the very center of our fellowship, the very center of the life of our congregation. And one of the things that you'll notice, I mean, you can talk about what's right or wrong about megachurches and church growth movement, whatever critique you want to lay on them, but I'll tell you, the biggest problem with some of these churches, not all of them, is that when you go into them, Christ is in the background. You can hang out a long time in those worship services and classes and sermons and fellowship of those churches and hear very little about Jesus Christ. And many of the worship services come across like multimedia self-help seminars instead of real worship services where Christ is revealed to his people through his word and the spirit of God puts the people of God on their knees before their Lord and Master. A healthy, vibrant, fruitful church is always a Christ-centered church. How prominent is Christ in the sermons, the teachings of the church? 
where you worship and serve? That's always got to be a question. Many of you, we are a transitional culture. Many of you are going to be going from here because a job or life change is going to take you somewhere else, and you're going to have to look for another church. And first and foremost, it must be a Christ-centered church where he is in the spotlight. He is in the focus of the worship, fellowship, and ministry of the church. Second point is that fruitful churches are pruned churches. Maybe not so obvious. Fruitful churches are pruned churches. In this image of the vine and the branches that Jesus gives, he talks about two kinds of branches, ones that show spiritual life and ones that don't. Speaking of the ones that don't, in verse 2, he says, every branch of mine, in other words, people that have some visible connection to Jesus Christ or to his church, some outward connection, every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. They're taken away, they're gathered together with other dead branches, and ultimately they are thrown into the fire and destroyed, which is always a picture of judgment. Remember what had just happened to the 12 disciples. The church that we're talking about at this point in history are these 11 disciples gathered in the upper room with Jesus. And of these 11 disciples, one of them just walked away. And they were distressed by this, very upset about this. The idea that one of them would betray Christ, that one of them would reject Christ, that one of them would be lost. Jesus has already made it clear that he knew all along that one of them was going to walk away from him. This was not a surprise. He was not saved and then lost his salvation. He never was saved. And ultimately, even though he had a connection to Christ outwardly, he showed by his life that there was no life of Christ within him, and he was taken away. That was ultimately work of the Father. He is taken away for the sake of the vine. But every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. And so those who are not truly born again, those who are not truly connected to Christ spiritually, will ultimately be removed, but those who do belong to Christ will be pruned. That's a fact of life, in order that they may bear more fruit. What's interesting is that in the original Greek language, there's a wordplay here that gets lost in the English. You can't translate it into English. It's that the word for takes away, what God, the vine dresser, God the Father, the vine dresser, does to the branches that are dead, it says they're taken away. And the word there in Greek is ario. But the word that he uses for those that are truly connected to the vine, those that are living branches, what he says for them is that they are kathario. It's the same word with a different prefix. Dead branches are ario, taken away. Living branches are kathario. They are pruned. It's the word we get in English, the word catharsis from. And it's the idea of cleansing, purging, purifying. And what's interesting there is that there's cutting going on in both cases. The dead branches are cut and taken away, but the living branches are also cut, cut back. They're pruned. To change the metaphor, it's the difference between a butcher and a surgeon. Both of them cut. But the intention and the purpose in the cutting is entirely different. Grapevines, you ever seen them off-season? I didn't grow up around grapevines. I grew up in the 
deep, dark woods in a house in the woods. I always have to clarify that. But I grew up in the woods, <laughs> and we didn't have any farmland around us, didn't have any vineyards. I never saw vineyards until I got into high school, and I was playing basketball for our basketball team, and we'd have to travel to Erie for basketball games against the prep schools. And on the way to Erie, I, we would go by vineyards, large, extensive vineyards. They're the first vineyards I ever saw in my life, the first vines. But the thing is, you know when basketball season is, it's in the winter. And so I never saw them when they were actually bearing fruit. I never saw them when they were beautiful and green and glorious. All I saw was these little cut-off stumps out in the middle of the field every winter. And to me, that's what a, what a vineyard looked like. But it was because they were cut back so dramatically that they became so fruitful in the following season. And that's the work of the Father to the branches that are connected to the vine, that are living branches, is that he will prune you. He will cut in your life. He will cut out things that are hindering your spiritual growth and health. He will cut out your bad theology. He'll cut out your bad worldview. He'll cut out your bad attitudes. He'll cut out your bad priorities. He'll cut out your bad habits. He'll cut out the bad relationships in your life so that you can become spiritually healthy so that you can become fruitful and successful in his eyes. We are approaching a period of persecution in the church unless God intervenes. It's been easy to be believers in this culture, comparatively speaking, for a long time. But those days are ending. And we are becoming increasingly countercultural. But you know what God does in persecuting times? He strengthens his church. He cuts. But what is left is solid and healthy and fruitful, and it changes the world. And so when I talk about persecution coming, there's some understandable fear with that, but there's also a a great deal of excitement. Because when the Father prunes his church, it gets strong and healthy and vibrant and fruitful. There's two kinds of pruning that goes on among believers. There's what the scriptures call discipline, and that's when we go astray, where God cuts out those sinful things in our lives. In Psalm 119, verses 67 and 71, it says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. That's the way of a disciple. And that's the perspective after the suffering's over. You don't rejoice in the suffering, but you rejoice when you see what God has used, how God has used that suffering to make you stronger spiritually to make you more dependent upon the vine. In Hebrews 12, it says, The Father disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That's discipline. That's pruning. That's the work of the Father. It's to make a healthy church. The second kind of pruning is testing. That's because not all the suffering, not all the cutting that goes on in our lives is a result of our sin. Not directly, anyway. Some of it's just to test our faith. Some of it's just to strengthen us. Some of it's just to to work out our faith, to make it stronger. James chapter 1 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
That's the work of the Father. That's the pruning work of the Father. Praise God that he's always doing it, even when it hurts. It sometimes hurts very badly. Well, that brings us to the work of the Spirit. We talked last time in chapter 14 a lot about the work of the Spirit. Well, that's where we get to the abiding part. Our response to being grafted into Christ by his grace and receiving spiritual life for him and having the work of the Father to prune us, to make us stronger in that faith, is that our response to that is to abide in Christ. And that's where we contribute to this process of becoming stronger in him. Jesus says in verses 4 and 5, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. Abiding, the word abiding sounds very passive. Sounds like you're just going to sit back in your easy chair and abide. And God's going to do it. But it's not passive. Other synonyms for abiding here would be remaining in Christ, staying close to Christ, dwelling in Christ. And there's things you need to do in order to abide in Christ in that sense. To draw upon his strength and wisdom. To be, receive within you that life. You know, the vine is where the sap comes from that makes the branches strong and healthy. And that sap in the, in the metaphor is like the spiritual life that flows from Christ into his people when they abide in him. And the church's job is to teach people how to draw up on that life-giving sap from the vine. It comes through abiding. And abiding happens when we make use of the means of grace that Christ has given to his church. We talk about means of grace in our circles. It's unfortunate that all church circles don't talk about means of grace because real grace, real tangible, powerful, life-transforming grace is transferred from Christ the vine to us the branches when we make use of the conduit of that grace, the conduit of that life-giving sap from the vine into the branches. When we make use of it, real grace flows into our lives and it changes us. And the means of grace, in Jesus, you notice, he refers to both of the main ones here. Did you pick up on that? The word of God, we said this last week, the word of God and prayer are the two main means of grace. There's also the sacraments, debate about what other means of grace are, but we know for sure that the word of God and prayer are two of the main means of grace that Christ has given to his people, the main conduits of the spiritual life and the sap of the vine to come into the branches. Notice how he talks about the word in verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. You cannot abide in Christ if you're not in the word on a regular basis. If it's not your daily sustenance of the grace of God that you need to live effectively in this fallen world. The word of God is a conduit of life. And the Holy Spirit uses the word of God to reshape the way we think to reshape our worldview, to reshape our attitudes, to reshape our priorities, to change the way that we live, our lifestyle, and the way that we think. That's what the Holy Spirit uses to transform us. And when we're transformed, we begin to look like Christ. You know what the fruit of the Spirit are. 
Paul spells it out for us in Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's Christ-likeness. The branches begin to look like the vine. And that's how the branches glorify the vine, is that they reflect the nature of the vine. Disciples become like Christ as they bear the fruit of the Spirit. The second means of grace Christ alludes to in verse 7 where he mentions prayer. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. He mentioned prayer in our passage last week, didn't he? He said almost the exact same thing, actually from two weeks ago. Beginning in verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, this will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. You see, That sounds like this blank check promise, but you understand it's in the context of branches that are abiding in the vine. Branches that are drawing their life and their their thinking, their worldview, their attitudes from the vine so that your worldview is changed, so that your goals are changed, so that your pleasures are changed, so that your passions in life are changed, so that when you pray, having been transformed by the Spirit and the Word, Guess what you're praying for? The will of Christ. You're praying for exactly the same things that Christ is doing in the world, and you're participating in his work in the world through your prayers. And that's why you get what you ask for. You see, a healthy church is a church where the branches are abiding in the vine and therefore are bearing fruit because of the life that's flowing in them through the word of God and prayer. And that's where the megachurches, many of the megachurches, and much of the church growth movement missed the boat. Matter of fact, there was an amazing statement that came out from Bill Hybels, who was the pastor and the leader of the church growth movement in the very beginning, the pastor of Willow Creek Church. Bill Hybels came out with his staff and made this statement back in 2008. We made a mistake. We made a mistake. What we should have done when people crossed the line of faith and became Christians, we should have started teaching people that they have to take responsibility to become self-feeders. We should have taught people how to read their Bible between our services and how to do the spiritual practices much more aggressively on their own. What they realized is they were very effective in getting people in the pews and they were very effective in getting church programs and lots of activities, but what they had failed at was in making real disciples, of teaching people, I don't like the word self-feeders, but you get the idea, to be able to read the Bible, study the Bible, understand the Bible, and grow in the word, and to draw upon the Spirit through prayer, and to live the spiritual life as branches abiding in the vine. And as a result, they ended up with churches that were a mile wide and an inch thick. So a healthy, growing church is an abiding church. And you notice what Jesus promises at the very end of the passage? That when a church is an abiding church, what happens is that the church is filled with joy. Do you notice that promise at the end? He says in verse 11, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. You know, I still use some of those metrics, some of those measurements to try to determine whether our ministry is healthy or not. Some of them are very helpful. But uh, there are also some very almost instinctual things that you pick up on as a leader in the church. And one of them that really is a better measurement of how healthy the church is 
is how much joy is there in the church? How much joy is there in the worship? How much joy is there in the Sunday school classes? How much joy is there in the fellowship while people are standing around with coffee and donuts afterwards? How much joy is there in changing diapers in the nursery? Well, I may even take it too far. But how much joy is there in the life of the church? It's something that you can't quantify, you can't put a measuring stick to it, but you, you know it when it's there. And that's the thing. When, when your people, when the people in the body of believers are abiding in Christ through the word and prayer, there is a joy of the Spirit that attracts spiritual seekers. And that's why a healthy church grows. Because people that are spiritually empty, people that are spiritually hungry, they see people not just serving the Lord, not just studying the word, not just worshiping, but doing it with the joy of Christ, and they say, I want to be a part of that. That's a healthy church. How does a church grow? Well, it's the work of the Father. As he prunes, as he cuts, as he purifies. It's a work of the Spirit as the Holy Spirit drives the Word deeper and deeper into our minds and our hearts and transforms us so that we become prayerful, Christ-like, and joyful. I've benefited from a lot of the Church Growth Movement's books. I've learned a lot about leadership. I've gone to seminars to learn about how to be a better visionary, how to be a better organizational pastor, how to do it. Those things are helpful but it's all secondary to the kind of spiritual health that Jesus is portraying here in John 15. That's why we talk about the trellis and the vine here. You hear us talk about it all the time. That's why we call our building fund the trellis fund, because things like the building, things like the organizational structure, things like the budget, things like this, these are all things that are necessary to support the ministry, but it's not the spiritual life of the church. And it's not what we're trying to measure to see how successful we're being. What we're trying to measure is how healthy is the vine and the branches in this church. And are we bearing the kind of fruit that the scriptures tell us to bear? A successful ministry is measured by the spiritual health and maturity of the branches, and you are those branches. How well do you understand the word? How deep is your faith? How much are you increasing in holiness? And what is your joyful witness to the world around you? Let's pray.